Welcome to the Keeping the Nostalgia Live show, where we interview athletes, coaches, entertainers, artists, musicians, authors, and many more on both our podcast and YouTube channels. We discuss their upbringing, careers, and what they're doing today. We document the past so the future can remember. Please like, follow, subscribe, and share our programs. Got a guest you'd like to hear? Contact us and try and get them on the program. We have over 200 episodes recorded, so please enjoy. Stories can't be remembered unless they are told. Someone asked me one time how I get my guest ideas. It's easy. Those I've had memories of in my lifetime. In a weird sort of way, it brings closure to certain times in my life. A history major at Indiana State University, I feel it's my way of preserving history for future generations to remember. Welcome to the program. Welcome to the Keeping the Nostalgia Live show. I am your host, Billy Powell. You're probably watching this on YouTube. You can go to YouTube and type in the Keeping the Nostalgia Live show. Please subscribe to our show. We have plenty of content, over 250 interviews. Uh, you're also, if you're listening to this on the audio podcast, you're listening to this on uh, anchor.fm backslash KTNA. Uh, today, we're going to talk some hoops. We're going to talk some history. And we're also going to talk about a new book coming out uh, on Larry Bird and his high school basketball playing days. With us today is uh, Randy Mills, a distinguished professor at Oakland City University since 1983, an author of nine books. I think one or two of those are co-authored with his wife, Roxanne. Yes. Uh, and uh, before becoming a distinguished professor at Oakland City University, he was at Lagodi High School for 10 years. Randy Mills. Randy, thanks for taking some time. Uh, uh, we're finally getting together and to chat. You know, yes. it's kind of hard with the holidays and stuff like that, but thank you for your time. No, it's, I'm happy to be here. Excited. So, so uh, growing up, you, you born and raised in Illinois? Yes, Southern Illinois. And that's, uh, we, we're very, those of us from that part of the state are very firm about Southern Illinois. So, and uh, so when did you get, did you get interested in history first? What kind of sports were you introduced first? Tell us about your love for the game of basketball. Just give us a little bit of a rundown. I, the, my interest in history was a childhood interest. I grew up in a very rural area, uh, somewhat isolated, uh, had a unique name, Horse Creek, uh, no villages or towns, just a, a couple of uh, family stores, a couple of churches, and a little uh, grade school that had eight rooms, or eight grades and three rooms. So almost like a one-room school, everybody's related distantly or, or closely uh, kind of a situation. And I was just really fascinated by the stories I would hear from the older generations. Um, to me, the past became instantly alive wherever I went because I could go someplace and I knew this event happened here. Some of it was pretty dramatic. I'm, I've actually written some professional articles about some of the, the violence there in that area, uh, almost frontier-like up until uh, about the 1920s into the 20th century. So there was that. Uh, basketball came later. I went to this little grade school. Uh, we uh, barely had a team. There were 16 uh, grade school teams in Jefferson County. Mount Vernon would be the county seat of Jefferson County there in Southern Illinois. 
And uh, we probably had the smallest grade school. Um, I didn't play varsity my seventh grade year because there were five guys in eighth grade. Uh, so my, my eighth grade year, I finally played varsity and I had gotten a lot of my growth. I was probably about 5'11", which is tall for an eighth grader. And I had really long arms. And when I say I had long arms, <laughs> I, I have unusual, long, I, I have trouble buying long sleeve shirts. Uh, I guess I, my body, my growth didn't uh, fill out to, <laughs> to match my arm width. But anyway, um, we had a team, I think we won one game and that was against the Catholic uh, church team there in Mount Vernon. I don't think they even had an indoor gym. I think we beat them by two points. But I scored a lot because I could reach up with my arms and keep shooting and they eventually go in. So uh, that was my first taste of basketball. But, but I, I think what really got me excited was I, I wasn't very close to my dad. Uh, he was a World War II vet. Uh, you know, they, those people cared around a lot of, of, of things with them they would not talk about. And he was, he was moody and uh, he, was, he was very good to the family. I mean, he took care of us and his job fed us and all that, but he just never, shared much. When I started playing basketball, he started showing up at my games. Uh, so fast forward to my freshman year at Blueford High School, which had barely 100 students, single class basketball, Southern Illinois, had, had a good tradition. They hadn't had good teams, though, since the 1950s. So I started in 64, 65, I believe was my uh, freshman year. And I made the junior varsity. They only had varsity and junior varsity. And suddenly my dad's going to all my games again and, and I'm riding with him in the car and we're talking basketball. And he was, he was an expert about Illinois basketball and Southern Illinois basketball and a lot of tradition there, very similar to Indiana and what we know here in Indiana. So it was that kind of environment. And all of a sudden I went from, from uh, uh, being interested in basketball to suddenly playing uh, junior varsity. And the coach saw that I was probably gonna be pretty tall so he got a, a kid to come in who had played for him before, who, who was playing in the community college. And he taught me some pivot moves and how to shoot a jump shot and those kinds of things. So that was a, that was a nice season. I really got involved in basketball then. Uh, my dad, even before then, when I was in grade school, would take me to, to uh, uh, the games there in Southern Illinois, the big games in the old gyms. And I heard a lot of stories. So I was just enamored with it. And then as I got involved, it became exciting. Uh, I, I lived in this rural area where I couldn't drive a tractor very well or, or fix equipment, uh, farming equipment. So basketball kind of made up for that uh, sort of thing. Uh, big surprise my sophomore year, there were six uh, junior, or seniors that year who were probably gonna start, but we got a new coach. And uh, he didn't know anything about anything. So I figured, well, okay, we've got a pretty good a junior varsity team, let's, we'll play junior varsity again, let the seniors play and then we'll get our glory in my junior and senior year. I ended up making the team uh, starting five as a sophomore. It was my best time playing high school basketball, no pressure, uh, uh, didn't know what I was actually doing. I was just going out there playing. I think there for four or five games, I was a leading scorer. Um, we only won a single game, but I was just living the dream, starting and, and, and playing basketball. And then my junior year, uh, we had uh, a good junior team and uh, junior class. And then that sophomore class had two really good shooters. We went from one and 16 to 20 and six in a single season. 
Uh, and we had a new coach who was really smart about letting us play. And then my senior year, we won 25 games in a row. We had the longest winning streak in the state in single class basketball with uh, about 100 students. So that started my love of basketball. My dad wanted me to play in college. Uh, I was done with it. Uh, I had some offers at some schools. Back then, uh, African-Americans were playing down south. So I had several offers from smaller schools down there and a few in Illinois, Indiana and so forth. Uh, instead, I came over to Oakland City College, had an academic scholarship uh, where I've ended up being a professor at. And uh, when I started teaching, I taught at Lagodi, which talk about, and I knew nothing about Indiana basketball. And I go to the, to the very uh, uh, ground zero of uh, Indiana basketball before the three-point shot. And uh, when it was uh, small schools like that could really did well, even against some of the bigger schools. So that fired up my, my love of basketball. Um, when I started teaching at the university, I started having to publish. And I started, uh, I was uh, teaching history then. So I started writing history articles and a lot of those articles, and I ended up writing four books, two of them with my wife, as you mentioned, uh, were military histories. And I really enjoyed that, telling the stories of combat soldiers, getting their stories out there for the first time. There was a lot of healing with that sort of thing. And I wrote some more stories. I did uh, uh, a book on Indiana's first governor and so forth. Uh, and then a few years ago, I decided to, to uh, write my own story about when I played high school basketball. It was, it was about my father and my relationship and how it became closer uh, once uh, I started playing and, and how it was tough not playing in college when he wanted me to, but I needed to get on with my own, my own life. Um, so after doing that, I put some things up on some blogs and I got some really good hits on the basketball stuff. And I thought, you know what? Uh, people don't seem to be interested in the Korean War, the Vietnam War anymore, but this, this basketball history, it, it's getting a lot of interest. And so I started doing articles and uh, along the way, I started thinking about when I was at Lagodi, that Lagodi Springs Valley game in Larry Bird's senior year. Uh, it's in every one of Larry's uh, biographies and Larry talks about it in his autobiography, the game he wished he'd had back. Uh, it was at Springs Valley, I was there. Boy, did we have to get there early. That place was packed and uh, Lagodi won. It was an exceptionally close game. Uh, Bird made uh, kind of a pivotal mistake. So did uh, Beezer Carnes. Uh, but Beezer's the one in the, in the, in the stories, in the narratives uh, that sort of gets the blame for that thing. And so that got me interested in doing uh, 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 basketball stories. And you, you, we've mentioned these blogs, but I have a, uh, a blog site where I uh, try to pull out by looking at old newspaper articles, uh, uh, what I consider just sweet little stories that have been forgotten about some really good players that, whose names were never put out there and some really good teams and coaches too, who've been forgotten. So it's been nice to, to get those out there. And I've had a lot of good uh, comments and responses to those as well. Where is the blog for so everybody listening and watching can go to and read these? Okay, uh, R, this is all lowercase, R and R Mills authors, it's one word, dot com will get you there. And then you just click on the blog part and you can scroll down because I have I have some uh, 
uh, memoir stories of when I was growing up in Southern Illinois, which if you're interested in, in that sort of thing, they're, they're, they're funny. I try to be humorous about things, even though some of those things were particularly humorous, um, but you'll find stories there uh, on, on, on that site. And also uh, I've been sharing them to uh, Hoosier Hysteria and some other uh, basketball sites as well. Yeah, there's a group on Facebook that uh, I started called Indiana Basketball Memories. And then, of course, there's Indiana Basketball Memories. There's a page on Facebook and there's also Hoosier Hysteria, which is a page on Facebook. Also, um, I, I, I we'd spend the whole interview talking about how much I love the game of basketball. So but you guys can go to Facebook and just type in Indiana Basketball Memories or Hoosier Hysteria and you'll find both the pages in the groups. Um, so. I've heard different accounts of the Larry Bird and uh, uh, Springs Valley and Lagodi game. Uh, uh, did someone pay the fire marshal to look the other way? I don't know if he was paid, but he looked the other way. <laughs> the, the, uh, we got there, and, and I've done a lot of interviews with uh, Springs Valley folks and players and uh, have added more to the story. Uh, when I was teaching at Lagodi, I went to a lot of the a lot of the games with Lee Cavanaugh, who was, uh, I think, the eighth grade coach, maybe. Yeah, he was eighth grade coach. And a lot of, of Lagodi's success was from that feeder system, but also from the fundamentals they got from Lee. Uh, Lee and I both lived in Jasper and we carpool to Lagodi. And Lee took me there that night. But boy, I mean, we left early. And I said, Lee, why are we leaving so early? He said, we're not going to find a seat leaving early, but, you know, maybe we can find a place to stand. He wasn't far from the truth. And, and in interviewing uh, folks there, uh, I, I interviewed a couple of the players that were there at the end of the school day and people were already coming in uh, off the streets uh, before school even ended to find a seat. So I think the, uh, you could have 2,700 people in there and there were probably, uh, I think somebody estimated like 4,200. So it was way, way <laughs> overpacked and people were in the aisles uh, there was kind of a rafter kind of thing up there at the top where people were setting in. Uh, they were they were on almost to the floor. I mean, they, they had their uh, feet drawn back, but they were clear to the floor. And then people were standing, too. And I'm sure there were people out in the hallways during that game. Uh, so, yeah, there's there's that. Uh, the, the other thing I would say about that, because you were asking about, you know, what happened. One of the things I've discovered, and, and I, I knew this when I was doing military history, when you write about an event, uh, there will be a, uh, a lot of times there will be uh, a concrete narrative that's already been established. And those narratives are tough to break into and change because uh, the people that wrote them want them to stay <laughs> uh, like they are. It's their story, right? And, uh, and they wrote them and then uh, people buy into those stories and people aren't comfortable sometimes when you bring in a new angle. Of course, that's what historians do. There wouldn't be much to write if you didn't go back and, and find some new information and, and, and retell it. So the Larry Bird story got um, solidified in concrete very quickly. Uh, the first book that came out about Larry Bird was in 1983, and the author uh, was a colleague of mine here at Oakland City. He'd been here, come here the year before I came here in 1983, and his book had just come out, and he hadn't talked to Larry, 
uh, he interviewed the coaches and some of the family members and so forth. And he had, and all the books about Larry Bird, even Larry Bird's autobiography is very thin on the high school part, basically focusing on his senior year. Uh, so Lynn Korn is the name of the fellow that wrote the first book. His narrative about Larry's high school year gets repeated in all the other books. Now, some of the authors have gone and looked at some other things and filled it out a little bit, but that narrative stay, has stayed about the same. So I've gone back and looked at old newspaper accounts, which I have access to about every newspaper out there here in the region that talked about these games. And I've re-interviewed people and I've interviewed a lot of people that did not get interviewed. And it's been interesting what I've been able to add to the story uh, about that game and some other things as well. And I don't know where to start on that. <laughs> Is there anything that piques your interest here on, on, on what I've discovered? Well, let's go back to your first book was was on uh, uh, Governor Jennings, right? Yes. Um, I, I want to start. I'm going to come back to Larry Bird, but and I also want to say that for those who are watching and listening, Oakland City University is like a is is a hidden gem in Indiana, isn't yes. it? Yes. Yes. And and a lot of people don't, you know. Still, you know, I had uh, I went to Indiana State University, and I had. Uh, a couple friends who lived in Oakland City and went to Wood Memorial there uh, in that area. And um, man, it, being at Brad's house, it, you, you, you know, it, it's just a hidden gem. Tell everybody a little bit about Oakland City University. Oakland City University uh, at one time was the only uh, college, four-year college in Southwest Indiana. Uh, Vincennes uh, University was a two-year school at Vincennes, uh, but we were the only one. Evansville wasn't established yet. Uh, Evansville College, Evansville University, or uh, University of Southern Indiana. The school started in the 1860s. It was founded by uh, a, a father and a son, uh, William James and William Cockrum, and it was started as a liberal arts school uh, to educate uh, people and especially to educate and prepare teachers. They're just, they were having trouble finding teachers for the rural area here. And Southwest Indiana has always been kind of a stepchild, much like Southern Illinois. Uh, so I, I really identified with that when I came over here. I said, you know, this is just like living back home. We're cut off from the capital. Nobody pays much attention, uh, state capitals. Nobody pays much attention to us down here. So the Cockrums were trying to, to bring uh, uh, a higher level of education to the area and to produce more teachers. There was also a religious seminary. It was uh, founded by a, a general Baptist denomination, which they were a part of. Uh, so that started in the 1860s. It folded in 1875, resurrected in 1885. Uh, and I think the first class uh, graduated in uh, 1896. Uh, so it, it became, for many years, produced most of the teachers and uh, educational uh, administrators and coaches in this area, in the whole state, really, and in the tri-state for many, many years. Uh, uh, SQs went here, uh, which you know of there with the, uh, uh, they're running the basketball, high school basketball business here in Indiana, for example. 
Uh, and, and there's a really interesting sports tradition with uh, Oakland City uh, College that's been forgotten. Uh, one time we had a fellow during World War II that broke the national record for a single scoring game in the nation. Uh, Gil Hodges went here. I, I did an article uh, that ended up being in, in a uh, history journal called uh, Basketball Was His First Love. Uh, he wanted to be a basket, he wanted to be a professional basketball player. Uh, thought he would probably be that. His first year after playing with the Dodgers, he didn't do as well as he, as he thought he should have. So he came back to Oakland City uh, that summer to take classes because he figured he wasn't going to be playing baseball. And he thought, well, maybe I can coach basketball. Uh, when he came back in 1947 to Oakland City, Gil Hodges uh, uh, reinvigorated our uh, basketball program, our sports program, because it had died during World War II. Just wasn't enough men, weren't enough men coming here on campus. So uh, there's that story. And uh, then after that, uh, Oakland City's produced some, some pretty nice teams and had some pretty interesting players. Uh, Jerry Reynolds, uh, uh, NBA coach, played here. Uh, Larry Bird's brother, Mark, came here when I was here. And Larry showed up uh, uh, during his sophomore and junior year. Uh, uh, it's my understanding that, uh, that Mark wanted Larry to come here. If Larry had, he would have played one year with his brother, Mark. Uh, of course, the birds uh, coming from uh, French Lick and not having had anybody in their family to have ever gone to college thought Oakland City was Harvard. They, they didn't know the difference. I didn't either, for that matter. Uh, this seemed like a dream come true. Uh, of course, Larry's got another story there, and I talk about that in the book I'm writing, by the way, of Larry's near misses with some other places. Um, so I think we've had eight players now from Oakland City basketball that have made the Indiana Basketball Hall of Fame uh, over the years. So we've, we've done quite well. So to, to the book, of course, there is pressure on a professor to publish uh, when he's teaching at a university. What was that first process like and why the first governor of Indiana? My first articles, before I started doing books, I did professional articles. And getting a professional article in an academic journal is tough because the gatekeepers are so adamant about, uh, gee, this needs to be better and you need to fix this. So there's a whole, I, I could spend a week talking about that and horror stories about, you know, working really hard and thinking you had something neat and the editor thought it was nice. And then the people that review it say, no, this isn't good enough, you know. You keep trying to fix it and you end up going someplace else to another journal. Uh, but I, those articles were all educational journals about history education. I hadn't yet started history. Uh, after I finished my doctoral degree at, at IU, I started doing uh, history articles. And uh, there I learned the craft of writing about history. Uh, I became interested, I was always interested in frontier history. That was the reason why I wrote the, uh, the book on Jonathan Jennings. Um, he was Indiana's first governor and, and he had been forgotten. One of my themes and almost anything I've ever written when it's come to uh, history, it includes some forgotten group of people or person whose uh, story is incredible and, and needs to be put out there. We can learn a lot from it. So Jonathan Jennings 
was one of those people that you would think the first governor would have had a, a, a book written about him or an article, but in the 1920s, he got trashed uh, because of his, uh, he, was, he was an alcoholic. And uh, I went back and resurrected his story with an understanding of, of recovery and uh, was able to present it in, in uh, that framework. And it was a book that was uh, uh, regarded highly, uh, especially by people that, that understood what I was doing. There were some people that thought, well, what's this? You know, this, this guy was a failure, but, but he was not, you know? And uh, so there was that adventure. Um, I never had much problem getting books published. Uh, and, 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 and I had a, I, I, I had a game plan there. I discovered in writing articles that if you had something no one had looked at much, you were more likely to get it published because there weren't a lot of experts out there who'd already tromped around and, and set that concrete narrative. We're back to that concrete narrative that gets set that experts don't like to see and people aren't always comfortable with because they buy into the story. It's the story that they've heard and the story that's caught their eye and they don't want it messed with. So uh, nobody wanted to write about Jonathan Jennings. I did that. Nobody wants to write about these lowly combat soldiers. So I, did, I discovered stories where people um, had done incredible things in combat. Their stories had been missed. For example, there was a guy from Southern Illinois in the area where I grew up who had received the Medal of Honor in Vietnam. And uh, he was a conscientious objector. He was a medic. I think he was one of two conscientious objectors to get the Medal of Honor during Vietnam. And, and there weren't a lot of Medal of Honors given uh, or, or, uh, during that time. Uh, it's just a rare thing. And uh, Kenny Kay, Kays was his name. And Kenny was against the war before, during, and after. So he's such an interesting person. And he just wanted to come home and grow his dope and be left alone. And, and he had a very difficult time coming back. So I went back and looked at what he did because he never got the credit I think he deserved at home because of, of his activities at home, running uh, in, into it with the law because of his, his uh, drug use. But the guy received the Medal of Honor and I thought he deserved his story told. And so I told his story. How, and this is coming, I, I... I've got a major in history from Indiana State University, and I feel like 30 years later, I'm finally using it with, you know, memories, research and keeping and, and remembering people that need to be remembered yeah. and getting and getting stories told because if stories aren't told, they can't be remembered. And um, how aggravating as a historian did you get in doing military books? Because... I can watch them. I can watch the best military movies there are. Pri Saving Private Ryan, uh, Full Metal Jacket, uh, Platoon, and it's so aggravating that you know, especially with uh, uh, Korean and Vietnam War. It's like you know, what was the purpose? What? Why did these people have to die? And sometimes you can't explain why these people had to die. I, I want to talk to two things here because you brought up two things. You talk about the history work you're doing and you are doing history work. One of the things that helped make me a better writer and find the audience uh, that a lot of people ignore when they write history is that I was not trained 
as a historian, I was trained as more of as, as an educator. So I was kind of a novice historian. And I remember going to uh, uh, conferences and talking and sharing my articles and historians would come up to me, my age or professors in other places. And they were kind of shaking. They said, my gosh, you're so brave talking about that stuff. <laughs> I didn't know what they were talking about, but I was, I was breaking all the rules <laughs> by, you know, looking at these, these common people and these common things and, and not looking at the narratives, the other narratives necessarily to, to guide me. So uh, you do that too, when you talk about these basketball stories, this is a part of, a, of the baby boomer generation. This is, these are stories about how young boys became men in areas where you didn't have the farms anymore. And, and, and the impact of co uh, coaches sometimes for worse, but oftentimes for better. So this is all important stuff. But getting back to, to the combat stuff, I think by writing about common everyday soldiers uh, helped a lot. And what I did is I would go out and I would do interviews and I would get letters. A lot of them had letters. And then I would find people who had served with them and I interviewed them and then I got their letters and I looked at old newspaper accounts. And then I looked at the, old, the original narratives about these battles. And I had all this new information that had been missed about what these common everyday guys, they weren't generals, they weren't officers. They were just out there. They didn't know why they were there, but when they were told to do something, they did it. And oftentimes it involved fighting for the lives of their friends. It was that camaraderie that held them together when they didn't understand what they were there. They had that, that camaraderie of, of all of them making it through this horrendous nightmare of combat. And, you know, when I would get in contact with these people for the first time and say, hey, I'm doing uh, uh, an article or a book on this particular battle and about this particular person, um, they would share with me trauma. I mean, they, they were still traumatized by it. Uh, and, and it was very hard for them to, to talk to. So what I discovered in that is you'd end up doing maybe about four uh, interviews to get to the, to the nub of things. The first interview, you would get basic information. That's all they would give you. The second interview, you would come back and say, I need a little bit more of this, this, and this. Now, now you, you're going to get the funny stories. The third interview, you get the rest of, of some of the stories, the sad stuff, the the the, the stuff that you know is so hard for them to tell. And then the fourth time you interview them, you have to turn off the tape recorder because now they're ready to tell you things that they've told for the first time that's not for public. Uh, things they witnessed, things they did, things they didn't do. Uh, so I have tremendous admiration for those people. And I, I feel blessed to be able to tell their stories. Um, it was interesting when I started writing sports stories, I felt bad about it because I knew a lot of the guys that I'd gotten close to in these, in these books and in these articles where I told their stories in combat. I thought, gee, they're going to see it in the 60s. I was playing basketball when they were over in Vietnam. But so many of them said, you, you've told me what I missed. I got to see what I missed. You know, and it makes me sad, but at least I understand what that world was like. And, and what was going on, you know, back home 
Uh, and then they were happy for me. You know, I, I told one, a couple of them, I said, I just feel so bad. I feel guilty. And they said, I'd trade, I, I would take your place any day to have had your story instead of mine. It was that time. So, uh, yeah, you, you run into that. I think, I think the letters were so interesting because I would get their stories and then I could, I could look at their um, in real time letters and they often didn't jive. And I would go back in those other interviews and I'd say, hey, wait, you know, you, you're, you're telling me this, but your letter's saying this. Oh yeah, I'd forgotten that. And then they would go, it would, it would, it would get more memories for them. And you'd get that. And, and the same with these basketball interviews I do. When I go in and, and I've interviewed people and not just Springs Valley and Larry Bird's group, but I've, I've been interviewing people from all the teams that played against Springs Valley and getting their stories. So the same kind of thing that, that I just keep getting uh, deeper into these stories. And, and they're really fascinating stories about uh, the, the 60s and 70s, which I consider a golden age of small town high school basketball uh, in, in the Midwest and in, in Southern Illinois and certainly in Indiana. Did you get enough information when you um, your dad, you and your dad created a relationship when you started playing basketball. Did you get enough information? Do you have enough information on your dad that you could write a book on him? I could. I, I've got enough to write a, a book about my dad. Uh, one of the things that my dad did not talk about, and, and let me back up and say that in the culture that I grew up in, in Southern Illinois, we did have farming. That was an initiation in the manhood. My problem was I wasn't very good at driving tractors or fixing farm equipment. So I, I ended up at the low, low end of that, and that was hauling hay, which I, I got very good at. I ended up having my own crews and going out and built, built up some confidence there. But, but the real heroes of that farm world was like my older brother who could, who could drive anything anywhere through any kind of, of conditions and could fix anything. In fact, he spent his adult vocation fixing things all over the world. He was very good at that particular thing. Um, so in that world, I was around not only my father's generation, but my grandfather's generation, my dad's uh, parents' generation. So I heard a lot of stories about my dad that he never talked about. Uh, he was in World War II and uh, never talked about that. He was on, uh, uh, based on the equator and island close to Australia on a big naval base toward the end of the war. Uh, he came back and married his sweetheart and she died about a year later. And he had a little girl be my half sister. He never talked about that. So here I am. And as I become a young teenager, I need to talk to people about stuff that's happening to me. And I know my dad's had all these experiences <clears throat> and he's moody and, uh, and, and he's suffering from depression. I didn't realize it at the time. He'd come home from work and he would go to, he'd go to the bedroom and then he'd get up and he'd go to work. Now to the general public, uh, people loved him. He was uh, very, uh, he just had a gift and people would come to our houses. Uh, people who were depressed, especially uh, men would come and, and talk to my dad. I'd sit in the next room and hear these, these stories, but they'd always leave laughing with a, a, a smile on their faces. So you had that. And then after my half sister died, she had, I, I didn't know this, but she had all the letters that my dad sent home from World War II. 
and before when he was in training. Brother, did I get a wake-up call about my dad? Because prior to that, when I would work with my dad's generation out in the field, they told me about my dad and how I felt about the war and how I felt about his first wife. And it was so, so not true <laughs> when I started reading those letters. So that was exciting. I actually did an academic article about that. In fact, I did a, a, a it was an academic, it was in a, a genealogy journal. It was, it was a, a three issue uh, serial about my dad's life uh, in, in World War II and his early marriage based on those letters. Um, so yeah, that's what you do with that sort of thing. And uh, when I started going to basketball games with my father and, and everyone I think that loves basketball has that first moment when they say, wow, I wanna do that or I wanna be around that. Uh, I know I've, I've interviewed uh, and, and written some articles about Dave Shellhouse and he had that, that moment um, uh, when he was 11. I had that moment when I was in probably seventh grade and my dad took me to the first really true high school basketball game at Davenport Gym in Harrisburg, Illinois, South Seven Conference, Mount Vernon Rams, which is where my dad uh, went his last two years of high school, uh, was playing uh, Harrisburg. And Harrisburg had a player called Guy Lee Turner, the elegant elephant. That was the name given to him by a sports writer. And he was fantastic. He was 6'3", probably weighed 215, but he carried all his, his weight in his hips and his legs. And, but he was so light on his feet. And I came out of there just dazzled. And, and, I, and I wanted to do that. I wanted to be there. I wanted to have that. And that was in seventh grade. And there I was at lowly Farrington grade school, you know, trying to figure all that out. And uh, I remember when my brother was a freshman and he was playing on the junior varsity team, he didn't start. But my dad would take me to the, to the practices and the coach saw me, uh, junior varsity coach, was, he was also the high school coach. And I remember this is a little high school. And he saw me up in the stands and he waved me down. So I went down there. He looked at me and he said, you're about six foot tall, Art. And here I am in eighth grade. He said, yeah. And he said, what size shoe do you wear? And I said, 13. So he's calculating how big I'm going to be, how tall I'm going to be. And he said, we're going to measure you. So I thought, oh, gee, I'm, I'm, I told you I'm almost six foot tall. But he measured me from fingertip to fingertip. And I asked him why. And he said, because if you're normal, you will grow about to the height of, our, of what you are from fingertip to fingertip. And he said, he said, you're going to be at least 6'6". Six, six. He said, you're six, nine and a half. I really had long arms. Well, it ended up, I really had long arms. I ended up being about six, two and a half. I never got that extra growth. But the coach had my dad to bring me back to practices. And he, he brought in a, a young guy in that he'd had. And I told this story earlier to you, to you, to, to teach me how to shoot a jump shot and uh, how to make some pivot moves. And then he told my dad, he said, get your sons a set of weights. They need to get beefed up. Well, nobody was lifting weights back then. So we had these weights. It was a 110 pound set. My dad brought home and we had it out in their barn and up in the barn loft. We had a hay bale there for a bench press. And my brother lifted about one time and that was it. But I just fell in love with that. I started lifting weights when I was a freshman. And uh, I saw uh, and I studied it and uh, the science of it and so forth. So I started lifting 
And uh, by the time I, I came back as a freshman, I was I was pretty big. I, had, I was about six one then, probably 100, 190 pounds, which would have been big for a freshman. And then my sophomore year, I had my growth. I was almost six three, and I weighed about probably two ten. And then I went about two fifteen my junior and senior year. But I was still lifting weights, and uh, <laughs> I couldn't jump very high. But as one coach said, I could sure could play horizontally. <laughs> you know, I, I kept people out posting. I, I liked I liked contact. I loved contact. When we would play basketball back in the rural area where I grew up, you know, there were fist fights. We were pushing and shoving. And one time my brother invented this game where he took two by fours and him and another guy would guard me and with these two by fours. And so it, it would get pretty bloody. But it made me really rough and tough when I played basketball. My sophomore year, those six seniors hated me when I started. I, I was shocked when I started, and they were too, and they did not like it because I was knocking a senior out of the, out of the lineup. And, uh, and I had to use, uh, there was one practice I had to, and I'm, I'm a very kind-hearted guy. It, it, it wasn't a happy thing, but I had to show that I would, I would fight back. Uh, later on that year between my, sophomore and junior year that summer, my dad took me into Mount Vernon, which at that time was the biggest uh, high school uh, there in Southern Illinois. And I played with the high school, Mount Vernon high school guys. Uh, my best friend at the time, the, the minister's son uh, was a sophomore also. And he was about six, six and a half. He ended up uh, playing on the Mount Vernon squad there. He started his sophomore year too there at Mount Vernon. He ended up doing very well there. But anyway, I'd go in there in the summertime and I just had a blast pushing those Mount Vernon guys around because they weren't used to that. And I remember the freshman coach, uh, had, and I think we were, he was kind of from the area where I was from. And, and so he kind of liked me and uh, the Mount Vernon freshman coach. And those uh, junior and senior Mount Vernon guys were complaining. I said, this guy keeps pushing us around. And he said, hey, he's pretending, he's preparing you guys for the Big Ten because <laughs> someone went on and played uh, pretty high up high school basketball. But uh, that was probably, I was getting into my prime of my high school days because I wasn't overthinking it. And I was just going out there and, and playing hard. And my junior year, that first half, uh, we had three good scores. I mean, they, they, they could knock down, uh, this is for three point shots, but they could knock down 20 points or more every game, every one of them. But I ended up the first half of the season being the second leading scorer out of nowhere. And the coach told me, I remember he pulled me uh, to the side and he said, Nils, if you keep hitting 20 points a game or better, we'll win every game we play. That did it for me. That was the first time I had pressure on. I think there were even scouts and the, and the Mount Vernon guys came to see us play. And, and I had the worst game I ever had. And, and I, that was it for me. And then there was another thing there too. It was a, uh, I stayed the, uh, I kept up that scoring until after the holiday tournament. And that's when it kind of dropped off, but I'd fallen in love too for the first time. And, and uh, I'm going to have a blog on about that. If you want to put it on your site, I haven't released that yet, but uh, it's called the oldest rule, <laughs> you know, don't be dating or having a girlfriend during that time. But I told <laughs> you that. And, you know, I, that was a time, uh, I started getting into some depression during that time too, after that, uh, that breakup. And uh, there were some other issues there 
that I didn't know about in my senior year was my least favorite year. We won 25 games in a row. We set a record uh, winning percentage for a high school that's never been broken. Uh, we, we lost our first game and <laughs> we won 25 more. And we got beat in the regionals by a, a team that Doug Collins played on. And uh, of course that means something to you and I, probably not the younger people today, but he was good leading scorer in the nation at Illinois State. And then uh, uh, All-American, uh, first team All-American, uh, Illinois State. And then of course he played for the 76ers. He was the hero of the 72 Olympics, if you remember the basketball game there, so. Yeah, I saw the other day where the Redbirds had uh, all of their All-Americans back, and uh, yeah, wow. he was in, he was in the group, so it was nice to see him. Uh, what was uh, what was your tenure like at Ligoti? I loved it. Uh, I remember, and, and and this is kind of the tail end of my dad, my closeness. So he wanted me to go to. Uh, uh, I had some. Uh, offers uh, Illinois College, Jacksonville, Greenville College, uh, Greenville, Illinois, uh, all the uh, community colleges, which there were several in Illinois, University of Tennessee Martin, but he didn't want me going down there, uh, offered me a scholarship. So I ended up, my dad took me to uh, Greenville and uh, I didn't know where I was going yet uh, because I was, my depression had kicked in uh, I, I, I hadn't really found my true self yet. Uh, I, I was living people's expectations. I'd been very involved in the church, which was fine. I, I loved that. But, you know, I, I needed to explore some, and I, I hadn't started doing that. And so my dad said, we're going to Greenville. Uh, and I knew he wanted me to play there because then he, it was about a two-hour drive, and he could come see me play some more. So we drove up there, and we got there. And I should have known something was up because when we got there, uh, outside of the gym, underneath the shade tree, there were a bunch of guys, the coach, and they had uh, a, a, bar, a barbell and they were uh, bench pressing. A guy was bench pressing. They had a weight set there. They were lifting weights. Nobody was lifting weights. And I thought, wow, they lift weights. So uh, coach talked to me and said, hey, I see you lift weights. Oh, yeah, I lift weights. And there was a, a kid there I, I hadn't played against, but I knew. I knew of him from McLeansboro. That was a pretty good basketball player. This would be a pretty neat place to go. And they had a good history department. Meanwhile, my uh, minister at the time at my church, who was an Oakland City grad, said, let's go to Oakland City, take a test. You can take there, see if you can get an academic scholarship there. And I said, oh, okay, we'll go. So I got there uh, and, and I loved it. Uh, but I still didn't know whether I was going to go there or not. So I ended up getting an academic scholarship and broke my dad's heart and went to Oakland City and didn't play basketball. But when I, get, when I got to Ligoti, the, the, probably that summer sometime, probably late summer, because I didn't get that job till, till late in the summer. It was hard to find a teaching job in 1973. I probably had over 100 uh, uh, things I sent out to schools in the tri-state and I only got actually two calls and offers. One was at, at Ligoti. So I took my dad up there and we went in. Uh, I don't know if you've ever been to the foyer there at Ligoti High School, but it's got trophies all over the place. We're talking Ligoti. And this is after they'd gone to the state tournament in 1970. 
and there's pictures and, and there's uh, newspaper articles. I mean, it was something. And my dad and I were just standing there with our mouths open, looking around, seeing if we could find the best. <laughs> oh, look at this trophy. Oh, here, here's this trophy. And out came two of my students I was going to have that year. One of them was Wayne Flick, who played on that uh, team that beat uh, Springs Valley. And there's some, <laughs> Wayne Flick ends up being, popping up throughout that Larry Bird book. He's just a, a character. And that's another thing about, about writing, Billy. When you write, you have people who pop into your story and just take over your story that you don't see coming. And, and, and Wayne Flick was one of those. Another one, of course, was Steve Land there at Springs Valley in, in the Larry Bird book as well. So uh, that made it start on a good note because then my dad would call me and, and ask about, uh, uh, you know, what was going on. Of course, <laughs> I didn't know that what, what I walked into, you know, here's Lagodi and the next year they go, go all the way to the finals of the state tournament and always have good teams. And of course, Jack Butcher. So that was wonderful, those games. And uh, the students were, were wonderful. Um, I loved it. I loved my 10 years there. I just got finished with it after 10 years. I was ready to move on to a higher level of, of teaching, which ended up being at Oakland City. Um, I will say this, I, I did an interview with uh, Greg Bateman the other day. I don't know if you've seen any Greg's, Greg's interviews or not, uh, but he does uh, local people in, in the region. And uh, uh, he was interviewing me about my time at Lagoda. He'd been one of my students. And all he wanted to talk about was all the stories about how strong I was during that time from lifting weights. And uh, I'd forgotten that. I'm, I'm 71 years old. Those days are long gone, you know, and had been gone for a while. I still lift, you know, but, but I, I just, uh, I, I actually ended up weight training teams in, 19, in the early 1980s, uh, high school teams when I was still lifting some. But uh, uh, anyway, uh, that was interesting and a reminder. I remember one story, I, I got interested in, in uh, cave exploring, wild caves. So I had some students that were talking about it. Boy, that sounds really cool. So they said, hey, we're going to a wild cave. This was in the uh, fall of my first year I was there. So they took me into this cave. I, I couldn't describe to you <laughs> what that was like, crawling probably 100 feet on, on my belly just to get to an opening where I could crawl on my hands and knees for, for 100 yards, you know, get to where it opened up. And it was, a, it was really a nice cave. It had a little bit of everything. So when we got back there in there, they were laughing. And I said, what are you laughing about? And they said, well, we didn't know whether we were gonna like you or not, but you're pretty cool. We were gonna leave you in here in the dark. <laughs> I don't know if they would have or not, but anyway, that uh, kind of gives you an idea of what <laughs> life was like back then. I got along really well with the students that a lot of teachers had trouble with. I liked them. I liked their stories. I thought they were important. I thought they were important to teach. When I saw that they weren't going to be interested in my classes, I, I said, look, you know, just don't cause me any trouble. I like you guys. Uh, let's get along here. You know, keep, keep in touch. Let me know what's going on. So I'm, I made a lot of friends. And I remember Greg in that interview saying, and he didn't know quite how to say it. He said, you know, he, he, he was our friend. And he said, is it okay to say that? And I said, yeah, I felt that way too, you know, but I said, you know, I set limits. Uh, I, I, I could do what I had to do to keep control. But I love the students. I, I love teaching them. I, I, 
I believed that I was doing something important um, that was going to help them later. Um, I think Greg Bateman's show is on YouTube also. And I think it's called Getting to Know Your Indiana Neighbor, if I'm not yes. mistaken. Yes. Well, look, look for my interview if you want to see stories of me bending quarters. <laughs> did, you, did you see that, by the way? Uh, yes, yes, I did. Okay. Um, uh, back to, right, I, I want to get to the Larry Bird book that you're working on, but what's the process like? Is it nine books, you're working on your 10th book, is, does the process get easier? How much time do you dedicate to a, a book a day? What do, do you have a process now that you've done so many? For me, all book writing has been the same. It's the same process. There's the groping around the darkness for the subject. There's the discovery and the research. That takes probably two years. Then there's the writing. And that takes about two years. And then there's finding a publisher and getting it published. That takes a year to two years. And then there's the sales. So those are all a part of the process. But the writing process, to me, the research is the most fun because you're finding all this stuff. You're thinking, oh my gosh, this is gonna change the story. And that's what historians live to do. And I suspect you've done that too when you come across a story that's just not out there. And then when you write about it, it speaks to you. You get these things that come out. I know when, when Roxanne and I did probably our most successful academic work where we wrote about the, the call up of the Marine Corps Reserve during the Korean War. And that brought in a bunch of, of high school guys, many of them athletes, who had not had one day of training suddenly finding themselves in combat. But there was a company down in Evansville, Indiana that the book uh, centered around. And it also centered around the boys from Oakland City that was in that group. And one guy who lived in the house that my wife and I bought. When we bought this house, we found uh, after everybody, the family left, and the woman had lived there for 60, 60 years and raised four kids there. We found a room that hadn't been touched. It was left the way it was. And I knew instantly what that was because I'd seen it before in Southern Illinois where a dear a friend of mine and family had lost a son and they just left his room as a museum. So that's what I was looking about, looking at. And so that made us very interested. We found several old pictures up there in, in the attic there at the house. In fact, one of them graces the cover of the book. So we started writing the history of that group. And the guy who appeared out of nowhere, who kind of took over the book and ended up being a lot about his life and his dealing with the tragedy of his friend's death that had lived in our house, was a guy by the, the name of Gordon Green. And I first met Mo, uh, Gordon when this old guy was looking through my window one day and I was sitting in my easy chair and I go, what's this guy doing? So I go outside and he said, oh, I'm sorry. He said, I was just looking into this house. He said, my best friend lived here and I, I, I live in Nebraska. I teach at the University of Nebraska and I've come back to revisit my hometown here in Oakland City in the home where my dear friend lived. And I showed him this picture of, of the guys from Oakland City at, at the train station. His hand started shaking. He said, oh my gosh. He said, I didn't know. I don't even know who took this picture. He was in it, standing next to the guy from the house that, 
<laughs> lived in the house that we lived in. So Gordon's story about finding some kind of peace with the guilt he felt for getting his friend into the Marine Corps Reserve and getting killed in the Korean War ended up being a large part of that book. And uh, so those kinds of stories come out of nowhere and kind of take over and make you uh, take a another direction with the book. And I think every book that I've ever written has had that kind of, of character or maybe one or two, like in the Larry, Bur uh, Larry Bird story, you know, uh, some people that I didn't think would even be in the book that I interviewed and all of a sudden, wow, uh, their story is really gearing into some kind of archetypal thing here that's very present in the story. So that's the writing part. Uh, when I was younger, I might write without stopping for a day or two. And I remember writing for hours and looking up at the clock and realizing that six or seven hours had passed and I had no sense of time passing. Uh, so I was, I would, I would sometimes be in kind of a manic trance when I would write during those times. As I got older, that energy <laughs> went away. But I was pretty committed to writing uh, most every day. And I, I, lo I loved to write in the morning. Uh, the, the old timers, the farmers always said the mornings were the best part of the day. And, uh, and I was a morning person. I would get up and I might, by eight o'clock in the morning, I might have four hours in writing. And uh, I would do that. And there would be times when the writing would slow down or maybe stop. And here's another thing about writing a book. It's easy, but it gets harder. And about halfway through, Imagine pulling a wagon or, or, or pushing a load. You could use either, either uh, situation. That wagon gets fuller the more you write, or that rock gets bigger as you push it. And after halfway through, if you stop and go back to it and you, you have to start it back up again, it's like starting that big rock up back up again. It's hard to do. It takes some energy and time to do. Uh, at some point in there, you're thinking, why did I even start this? It's just consuming your time. Uh, you, you don't want distractions. You're grumpy with everybody, kind of like my dad, I guess, <laughs> back in the day. Uh, but then by that time, you've gone too far. You can't let it go. So that keeps you finishing it up. Then it becomes fun again when you start uh, going back through it again and you're editing it. You see things to fix. You see things to put in there. You, you see something you can make funny or sad. Um, I, I remember when I was uh, giving a talk at the Indiana Historical Society, and this was to their uh, annual meeting. And it was in their, their big center, their auditorium. There were about 400 people there. And we're talking about the mayor of Indianapolis and the senator and the governor and, you know, and, and big donors. And, uh, the keynote speaker had uh, had gotten sick. And so the historical, Indiana historical people come to me and they say, hey, you're going to be the key, keynote speaker. And I was not prepared. I was going to be giving a talk, but I thought I could wing this. And boy, I had to go out there. But what I did, Billy, is I told stories that I knew would hit the, in the heart. And, and, you know, people were crying before I got 
done because there's some sad stories there. But it is, you do feel like you've been a great, a good craftsman when you craft those kinds of stories. Um, when I wrote the story about the Medal of Honor winner, um, re recipient, at the end of it, one of the things that, that crashed into that book were the people that fought with that guy. I, I didn't know who they were, but I found them. And that battle where Kenny received that medal was so uh, bloody and it involved a small group of about 18 guys that got surrounded on the mountaintop by the enemy and they had to fight for their lives till they could be rescued in the morning. But I found the survivors and I talked to them and they experienced healing by telling their stories. But at the end of the book, I tell how we found the last guy that we couldn't find. We couldn't find this one guy. He, he had a name that was so rare. There were only, only three people in the whole country that had his name. So he, he was pretty easy to find, but then we couldn't get a hold of him. So finally, uh, we found him. And uh, his wife said later, she said when she got the call, he sobbed. He sobbed for a long time on the phone. And, but he kept saying, don't hang up, don't hang up. And, and then when he finally started talking to this guy that I was working with and had found him, and this is how I ended, the, I ended the book, the guy said, welcome home, which is what he needed to hear all these years. So, uh, you know, that was a pretty neat thing to be able to craft and tell. I've got a story in this uh, that I'm going to send you here that I just finished this morning that has uh, an ending to it that kind of brought tears to my eyes, too. About basketball, of all things. But you know, when you talk about baby boomer basketball stories, they bring tears to our eyes. These are our stories, and we're dying, and, and people are going to forget, and here's our chance to tell them. And some of them made a difference in our lives. So it has that kind of thing. There's a story in the Larry Bird book that does that about Steve Land um, and Wayne Flick, of all people, that, that I can't tell without getting teary eyed where they get together many years later by accident. Uh, uh, Wayne's a state trooper and he, he pulls Steve over. He doesn't know who he's pulled over and he's gonna give him a ticket. And when he sees who he is, he's just, he's just overwhelmed because he hadn't seen him for 30 years after a very rugged basketball game where, where Wayne kind of took Steve out of the game and made the difference in Lagodi winning that game against Valley. Uh, Larry would have been a junior that year. And uh, so they have that moment there to telling those stories. So how, how long do we have to wait for the, the Larry Bird book? What is it? Do you still have a, do you have a working title? Do you have a title? And tell us about what kind of can of worms you've been opening up and did, have you actually uh, reached out to Larry? Um, so as if by magic, um, the uh, high school basketball playing days of Larry Bird, something along those lines. Uh, it, started, it started with the title as if by magic, Larry Bird's breakout senior year. But what I realized as I started writing that is, first of all, as if by magic comes from a, a quote from one of the Larry Bird uh, biographies where one of Larry Bird's, uh, I think it was Tony Clark, 
uh, who played with Larry, uh, Larry's senior year, was talking about how good Larry got there toward the end of his senior year, and of course into his uh, or his junior year, and there into his senior year. And he said it was as if as if somebody had, had had waved the magic wand. And another guy picked up on that that wrote a uh, biography of Larry and said it, it was as if by magic. Well. <laughs> Being the writer that I am and looking at, at words and phrases and precision, I started thinking about that. And I thought, you know, as if by magic is ahistorical. There's no history if it's by magic. It just happened out of nowhere for no reason. And as a historian, I knew, well, that's not right. There's something that brought Larry to that moment. There was something that brought those soldiers to those moments. Or, or players to those moments that had to do with the past and maybe many uh, events in the past. So I started looking at old newspaper articles and interviewing people looking for that. Meanwhile, let's talk about an, another situation. The Larry Bird narrative as famous narratives get to be is set in stone. Uh, Lynn Korn did that first book and, and every other book about Larry's uh, high school days basically follows that. And by the way, I think there's maybe five or six books altogether, uh, biographies of Larry Bird. And every one of them has about, I don't know, maybe an eighth of it's about Larry's high school days. And the rest about it is, the rest of it is Indiana State and, uh, and of course the Celtics. So <laughs> there's a lot to dig into when you start looking at all of the, of the uh, Larry's high school history. But then you realize you gotta go back farther if you're looking at the cause effect that's bringing Larry to his moment. So there's a whole chapter on Jim Jones and, and what uh, Coach Jones brought uh, as someone who developed Larry as a basketball player. Larry Bird said that Jim Jones taught him everything he needed to know to be what he became. Uh, and then I looked back to see what, what had gotten Jim Jones there. I mean, you go back, right? And, and then I run into Larry Bird, number 33. Well, Larry Bird wasn't the first 33. Mark Bird, his brother was. So then I started looking at the family dynamics, which I was aware of because of the family dynamics in my own life. Uh, with having an older brother and how that motivated me to be good at sports because he could fix that, <laughs> all that damn <laughs> farm machinery. So uh, I started looking at uh, uh, Mike, who was the older brother, and Mark's story. They were a year apart. And then Larry came a couple of years later. I think there were five kids in four years because there was a sister there too for Larry. And then there were, uh, what, two kids afterwards, after Larry, a little bit later, of course. So those people, I started looking at the old newspaper, uh, newspaper articles about Mike and Mark and their work and what influenced them and their influence on Larry and how all that came together. And uh, you have that. So you have the idea that Larry's senior year was out of nowhere. Well, I saw that wasn't true. Um, 
but but it is interesting. You don't see it coming. Nobody sees it coming. Uh, Jim Jones looked back and said in Biddy Ball that Larry had the unusual talent of 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 playing off the guy who was guarding if he thought the pass was going to go to somebody else and stealing the ball. Well, boy, that's vintage Larry Bird, isn't it? So he was seeing that at a very young age, Larry doing that at a very young age. Um, Larry had did not have a particularly good freshman year. His eighth grade year, he got kicked off the team. He had a, he had a temper and he hated to lose. So all of that was coming together. I talk about it in the book. Um, I think the first thing that I ran into that I challenged as one of those concrete stories happened in Larry Bird's sophomore year. Are you familiar with, with the story where Larry said he became very turned on to basketball? The, 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 the big, but, but he says there was more than one, but he always, this is the one. But one of the ones he talks about that was kind of a, a, the, the moment that he said, I want to be that, I want to do that was when Mark scored the two winning foul shots that won uh, Springs Valley uh, a sectional, which is a big deal in Indiana. And Mark had not been coming to any of the games. He'd never been to a varsity game before, but he came to that one. And he saw his brother uh, do that. And uh, he was a freshman then, and he wanted that in his life. So the next year, Larry is a sophomore and he breaks his ankle in a junior varsity game and he misses almost the whole season. I think he plays his last six junior varsity games so he can dress for varsity. He wants to dress for varsity and he's hopping around and, and so forth. So he plays that sophomore year and uh, Steve Land is a junior and they don't have a very good uh, team that year. I think they had Kevin Carnes, Jackie Carnes, and they had uh, Steve Land and, and uh, Larry didn't even play until the sectional. So Larry dresses for the sectional. Now we're getting a story that people are going to be familiar with. And he hears his name being called. And he thinks it's coming from the, from the fans. And oh, it's the coach. Get into the game. So he goes into the game and he scores. Now I'm telling the, the story, the narrative that's popular. He starts scoring. He talks about this in his autobiography, He's scoring these, these long baskets and the fans are going crazy. And uh, it's making a difference to the game because it's, it's and it, it is true that the game's been very, very close up until this point. And uh, then he's fouled and he makes the two foul shots that wins the game. Now this isn't in the final game, but it's in a sectional game. I think it's in the first sectional game against West Washington. And that is also another uh, event in his life where he's getting all this acclaim and he wants more of it. So that's another moment in his life that's turning him toward, you know, working so hard in basketball. Well, let's look at that for a moment. So I'm looking at the newspapers and Larry says in his autobiography, he said, and the next day the paper says, Larry Bird saves the day. So I'm looking in all these newspapers. Oh boy, this is a great story. I don't see any newspapers in any of his biographies. Nobody's quoted newspapers. <laughs> so, so I'm looking through these newspapers. Hmm. Here are the box scores. 
Uh, Larry was two for nine in one of them. So he had two field goals and he, and he, was, uh, and he had the two foul shots. So the foul shot story is correct. One paper had him making one for nine, one field goal. So I'm thinking, okay. Now, let me back up to my writing of my memoirs back a few years ago in my book about my senior year. When I first started writing down my stories and I started comparing the newspaper articles, I discovered I was wrong half the time. And I thought I was telling the truth. I was wrong about how good I was half the time and I was wrong about how bad I was half the time. <laughs> I mean, I was wrong both ways. I, I didn't remember it all correctly. Who knows why, you know, many years later. So the newspaper articles really helped me get my story down straight. Uh, and so there was one newspaper writer I came across, and here's another guy that kind of takes over the story. His name is Harry Moore. He's the uh, sports writer for the Paoli Republican newspaper. And he had an article. So there was uh, uh, an article in the Bedford paper about Larry in the box score, an article in the uh, Courier Journal, Louisville, Louisville Courier Journal, about Larry, Larry's game that, that Larry talks about in his sophomore year that made such a big, big difference for him. But Harry Moore has very detailed article. I, I got into those Paoli articles a little bit later to my narrative. But what Harry said is, he said, Larry came in and made the difference in the game. He scored two baskets underneath real quick and he made those two foul shots. There you go. There's what happened. The other thing that uh, I found was a headline. The hero of that game was Steve Land. He scored 28 points. <laughs> but in the telling of, of Larry, that got left out. So the newspaper account, the Courier Journal said, Land and Bird propel Springs Valley. I believe, like in my case, that's how Larry remembered it. He told the truth as he remembered it. And nobody had any newspapers to check up on it. And so that's the kind of stuff that gets in concrete, you see. So you start breaking up that con uh, concrete. You don't take away from it. It was that moment for him. But you start, you start seeing other things. <clears throat> so one of the things I started doing after that, well, the first thing I did is I got into Larry's junior year. Uh, and now we get into the chapter in my book. I, I don't want to give away a lot of this because it's, it's, it's interesting. I want readers to be, <laughs> to want to look for it. But that chapter is about Steve Land because Steve Land breaks every record there is to break of Springs Valley that year. And no, and no one remembers that because next year, Larry Bird comes along and breaks all of Steve Land's records. Uh, but. Steve was the leading scorer that year. He broke, broke the single scoring, uh, single game scoring record, the all-time scoring record, the rebounding record. You know, he did all that. And then Larry comes along, boom, he's forgotten. So, uh, but, but not only that, not only 
and the name of that chapter is The Forgotten Black Hawk and did an article for it too in the Hall of Fame uh, magazine, Indiana Hall of Fame magazine. Um, but also that year's forgotten. That was Jim Jones's best year. He was 18 and two that year, but they lost to Lagodi in the conference. So they didn't win blue chip, chip conference. And they lost to Orleans in the sectional in a, against a team they beat by 16 points earlier that year. So the year got forgotten as well. So that's the kinds of things I'm looking about and, and, and challenging the, the, the old narrative. Um, I think too, uh, the other thing I started doing here, I thought what would happen and I've just started doing this recently with the book as I'm writing on it. So obviously the book's in progress. But I said, what would happen if I took Larry out of the story for, for just one time and, and looked at it with the other guys? Boom. The other guys' contributions start showing up. So, so when you read the book about Larry Bird and his, and his high school years, now it's about the basketball world of Larry Bird during that time, not only what Larry was able to do, and it was amazing what he did his senior year. I mean, it, it was, <laughs> I gotta say, I would use the word miracle <laughs> to describe what he became and he's one of a kind because of that, because of all these things that brought him to this moment, Larry Bird still went out and did it and in, 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 in obviously did it in spades. Uh, so not only the Springs Valley players, but the great players in the region that Larry's story kind of sucks the air out of. Mike Leaguers at Jasper. Uh, oh my gosh, Kurt Gilstrap at Orleans. Uh, Tim Eubank at Paoli. Dave Smith at uh, Milltown. And, then, and those were the big guys that Larry played against. And remember, Gilstrap, and Orleans beat Springs Valley Larry's senior year in that first game. And uh, Kurt outscored Larry in the a, in a second game they played in that year at the holiday tournament. Uh, Tim Eubanks outscored Larry that year in, in a game. Uh, Mike Leaguers never outscored Larry, uh, but Jasper always played them, uh, played them close. Uh, <laughs> they didn't in that first, that, that first game against Jasper uh, Larry's senior year was was the big moment when Springs Valley realized what they had. It all came together, and they lost two games up until that point. But then they only beat Jasper by two points in the regional, uh, in that first game of the regional. But anyway, uh, to give you some idea of, of, of what I'm doing with the book and how it's going to be different, and you're going to see, I, I hope to have pictures. I found a lot of old pictures in the uh, in newspaper articles, I'm sure I've never been out there before that I hope to put into the book, but also stories that again, get forgotten about and, and how when you, when you put it in real time and people don't realize what's happening, there's much more tension there too. So I, I add that tension to the story uh, by doing it that way, by telling it in, in sort of in real time rather than looking back and saying, well, we all know what's gonna happen here. You know, we, I tell it as if, well, we don't know what's going to happen. And some of these games are really close. After Lagodi beat Springs Valley, one of the forgotten games is the next game. 
is Springs Valley going to come out of it? Or are they going to go in a tailspin like they did the year before uh, when they lost to Ligoti? And they have this very close game and it's against um, Southridge. The Southridge is ahead almost the entire game. It's at, it's at Huntingburg. And I think Beezer Carnes is kind of the hero of that game, though Larry, I think, scores the last, last pass. Or maybe it was Beezer. I'd have to look back. But, but there are other heroes in those kinds of games. And what would have happened had, had Southridge won that game? Uh, certainly, uh, Springs Valley was ripe for that kind of upset. Would that have changed the trajectory? Would uh, uh, Springs Valley won their sectional then or would have thrown them off when they got the sectional time? Who knows? Remember, Dave Smith played at the University of Louisville for years. Uh, Tim Eubank uh, could have went and played uh, high school basketball or college basketball in many places. He ended up playing football at, at Purdue where he was co-captain in 1978. Big strong fellow who, who went toe to toe with Larry, sometimes on the floor uh, in some of their close games. Uh, Kurt Gilstrap went to University of Louisville and would have played, but he didn't like the bigness of it and came to Oakland City College and probably was the best Oakland City College player that played basketball there. Uh, Mike Leaders, of course, went to DePaul and set records uh, there as well. So uh, th those, those are kind of uh, uh, some of the things I'm, I'm doing without giving away some of the, the good stories away. Though, though I do include some of those, if you go to, uh, to my blog site, you'll see, I, I can't stand it. I, I did put the uh, Steve Lance, a lot of Steve Lance stuff there about his, his senior year. By the way, Steve had, uh, he had several offers to play, uh, play college ball as well. And uh, unfortunately, and I talk about this in the book that didn't pan out. Do you delve into the all-star game experience any? And Larry? I, I do in kind of an indirect way. Um, I, I'm thinking about ending the book with Larry Bird's lost season. Um, and, and, and so backing up, I haven't yet. I may put it in there. That's an interesting story, of course. But that, that whole lost season, which would include really his, his being uh, unhappy with the All-Star games, the way those uh, played out. Of course, you know, he went to IU, as did uh, Steve Land, to play basketball, as did Steve Land. And uh, it just didn't work out. <clears throat> Steve stayed on and went to med school there. Uh, Larry, of course, uh, quit, didn't know what he was going to do. Uh, so I look at that lost season. And what I pick up on is he went to, uh, he scrimmaged and he, and he was going to play at Northwood Institute there in Valley. But then he quit there and he played at Hancock Construction. And, and my thesis would be, my claim would be that his playing uh, with Hancock, and by the way, they uh, Hancock uh, construction when Larry Bird played there, they played the Indiana All Star team that year and beat them. That was uh, the All Star team's warm up to play Kentucky. So uh, I, I plan on using that as as the uh, the last chapter to talk before Larry goes to Indiana State about uh, how he kept his hand in basketball during that time. And he also played at uh, the Evansville, uh, what was it called, Tri State tournament down there, Evansville. Uh, uh, or where you had teams, independent teams coming in too. Are you familiar with the uh, with that the uh, 
the tournaments down in Evansville over the yes. years. Yes. There at yeah. the uh, not the Coliseum, but the uh, oh the National Guard Armory is where they played those games. Who was that? Jones. I can't think of his first name that ran that. It was like sixteen teams they bring in from all over the uh, the, 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 the the nation, the area there. But uh, you saw some good basketball there. You you seem. It, it, it's fun to watch you talk about this book because you, you look like you're having a blast. I am. I had to stop it. I'm still working. And uh, I've got another semester, probably going to hang it up. But, uh, you know, my boss expects me to work and I don't want to do well by my students. I have wonderful students here. So over the, the break, I thought I would work and probably finish off a draft of the book, but I ended up putting it aside. And you're going to see me pushing a rock here in a week or so, getting that baby started. But I think I'm going to be excited because in the book, it's right. At, they're, they're getting ready for a sectional play. And uh, they're worrying about having another blow up like they did the year before where Orleans beat them. And they're going to play Orleans. And so they're, they're nervous about that. So that's where I'm at. Does Larry know about this? And have you met him? I have not contacted Larry. Um, I've talked to everybody else. Uh, and, I, and I'll tell you this, there are some people that are close to Larry, that played with Larry, and are, are good friends with Larry, grew up with Larry, that have been hesitant to talk to me. And that, that have, that's made me cautious. <clears throat> and I think what's happened is those writers, and there was an unauthorized uh, biography of Larry written by uh, his aunt that uh, put a lot of stuff out there about his family that was very disturbing to Larry and his family. And uh, uh, the guy that wrote the first uh, biography for Larry, uh, Lynn Korn, ran into that. <laughs> and so he was very careful. And so the word got out that there were certain things that you didn't talk about. So I ran into that a little bit when I started talking to people and they told me, they said, hey, I, I love what you're telling me you're going to do with the book. But, you know, I, I just I don't feel comfortable. But once people started seeing those blogs out, especially, you know, I started putting out blogs about some of the other players like Beezer Carnes. I don't think Beezer ever got his. <laughs> Damn the son. Because he was uh, he made a big contribution, several. But, but you know, that, that, the, the narrative that got in contrast. Uh, that got stuck in concrete, concrete was that narrative about he lost the, the, the game against Lagodi. And, and that wasn't necessarily the case. You know, Larry, Larry missed some things too during that time. And I think that's why Larry went easy on him. But, but, he, did, but he did tell that story, you know, about, you know, if, Larry, if these had been paying attention, that might have not happened. So since that time, I've, I've talked to about everybody I wanted to talk to. And I think, for me, the book will be pure if I wait and talk to Larry later. I, I don't know why I feel that way, but I, I guess I want to protect all these other stories, too, of these guys that have not had their day in the sun. I'll tell you what it reminds me of. It reminds me of when I used to, to write military history, and I would start interviewing officers, and I would tell them what I was doing and what I was finding. And they didn't like hearing it because it was going to screw up the narrative. 
And that narrative for them was made that protected a lot of officers and mistakes that officers might have made. Uh, and so I, I just quit doing it after a while. I had a few officers on the lower levels who were at, actually there at the battles who knew these guys and they would share with me everything. But uh, anyway, uh, I don't know, we'll, we'll, we'll see, it's, it's, it's not done yet. Um, now on this on the blog that you have, and I would like you to repeat it here before we end. Um, can they also get your books on this blog? Is there a place where they can uh, click and um, see the uh, all the other right all the other um, books that you have and could possibly order? I, I, I would uh, have them to just go just uh, Google uh, Randy Mills author, and uh, they'll find me all over the place. Um, now, I don't think there's any other Randy Mills authors out there. There's other Randy Mills, but if you put author there, uh, they'll be able to get off of Amazon, uh, Barnes and Noble sites, uh, 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 IU Press, uh, but Amazon's as good a place as any anymore to get those. And they can read, uh, they can read the reviews and they can read some of the narrative about the books, uh, my basketball books on there as well. Um, they, they might want to go to uh, with my basketball book, An Almost Perfect Season, uh, uh, Red Dog Press uh, has published that, but they can get it on Amazon as well. So either place there, but that would probably be the easiest thing to do. Randy Mills, distinguished professor at Oakland City College since 1983, author of Going On Now 10 books, although he has nine under his belt. Uh, we went a little bit long. I appreciate it. I look forward to this book coming out. That's for sure. Uh, I will put into the bottom of the comment section the, the link to your blog and uh, also the other books that uh, you have authored. And of course, the two that you author co-authored with your wife, Roxanne. Uh, thank you so much. I know we went a little, little bit long, but uh, it goes by pretty quick when you're talking about something that you're excited about and love and have a passion for, doesn't it? Yes. Yes, it does. Thank you, Billy, for this. And I, I look forward to uh, to getting the book done and you can do me a favor. I know uh, there was one book that I had a lot of trouble finishing because of, of some personal things going on. I lost a son and it was a military book. And, and the guy that brought me all the, the letters for the last military book I wrote, my wife and I wrote, he, he said, I know you're going through a hard time. He said, can I do anything to help you? And I said, yeah, every six months, call me and make me feel guilty. <laughs> because I want to finish the book. <laughs> and he did, he called, it took about two calls and finally I was ready to go on that. So if, if it doesn't come out here in you know, six months, call me and check on me and see what's going on. Oh, I will. I will make sure that I do that. I, I will be, I will be a, a book therapist. Okay, there you go. Yes. That sounds good. Randy Mills, thank you so much. I appreciate it. Great, great time. Thank you.